the teachings of the apostles, or the catechism of the early church. Join Pastor Hook in today's teaching of the Didache. All right, so um, let's go ahead and get into the Didache. Now, yesterday we talked about um, the Lord's Supper. And pretty much in the first century, second century, the Lord's Supper was pretty much always called the Eucharist. Eucharist is a word that means thanks or thanksgiving. So it was definitely seen as a meal of thanks. And um, we talked yesterday about uh, the early church and how they felt about it. And uh, we looked at, we've been looking at chapter 9 and chapter 10. But one of the things I want to point out in chapter, and we're going to go back and look at just one thing in chapter 9. Um, I just want to show you this. Uh, so this is chapter 9. And uh, I want to point out one part of this, which starts in verse, uh, in the middle of verse 4. Uh, it says, As this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains, but was brought together and became one, so let thy church be gathered together from the ends of the earth to into thy kingdom. For thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. And then in chapter 10, we see something very similar, where it says in verse 5, Remember, Lord, thy church, to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in thy love, and gather it together in its holiness from the four winds to thy kingdom, which thou hast prepared for it. For thine is the power and the glory forever. So the reason why I point these out is that there seem to be, in partaking of the Lord's Supper, this idea that the church is scattered to the four winds, but through the Lord's Supper, we gather together in holiness. And that's, that you see that in chapter 9 and you see that in chapter 10. And the sense that I get from this is that the early church really felt that, that the church was a new kingdom. And Jesus talked in, in this language. Uh, for the, I mean, look, even at the end, for thine is the power and the glory forever. Remember the, the prayer that the Lord taught us, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In other words, and I really believe Jesus talked in language like this, in, is that the church, the Greek word ekklesia, the church, the called out ones, were basically a new gathering together. In, uh, on earth, you have kingdoms of the earth. You have the United States. You might have, you know, back then you might have uh, the kingdom of the Roman Empire. You might have kingdom of the Greeks. You might have the kingdoms of Turkey or Macedonia or whatever. Um, all of these are part of, of physical, earthly structures of people gathering together to create a kingdom. And typically at the top of a kingdom is a king. And, and the Jews were part of their own kingdom which was started, you know, back uh, thousands of years ago before Christ. Uh, but then they had kings. The greatest king, of course, is King David. Uh, and then they had a divided kingdom. Uh, and 
wars are fought over kingdoms and wars are fought over property and wars are fought over earthly possessions. But Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm showing you a new way. And the new way is this. You are now part of a new kingdom. And the new kingdom is called the kingdom of God, or in some places, the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus talked about this a lot. And the reason why I bring this up is because I do get the sense from the Didache in the early church that there was one kingdom, there was one church, and the church are the baptized people of God, that your baptism is the entrance into the kingdom, and the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist is this reminder that we're all one body on this earth, one body of Christ. I don't see anything in the Didache here that talks about kind of um, how we should separate ourselves out because there was no separation out until, um, until 1054 AD with the Great Schism where they, where they became the, the Greek Orthodox Church or the Eastern Church and the Western Church. So one centered in Constantinople and one centered in Rome. And it was a geographical division. So if you were in those areas geographically, you were either in the Western Church or you were in the Eastern Church. And at the Protestant Reformation, we get this sense from the Reformers that um, that there's now division in the church, obviously geographically, because the Protestant Reformation happened in geographical areas. But um, but then uh, then you started to see after the Protestant Reformation different church bodies existing in the same geographical area, and the question then became: Should we commune with people who are not part of our church body? And the way the reformers came down on that was that we, you know, communion is something that binds the church together, which it obviously does. So we should only commune with people who are together. Um, and that was, uh, that was part of the reformation. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it, because the whole purpose of communion is to join people together in tribes, right? In, in your area. But, um, it's not that kind of language is not supported in the Didache, and it's actually not supported anywhere in the early church writings because there was only one church. There was only ever one church. The way that they dealt with people that weren't kind of um, following the 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 unity of the church is that they um, they got rid of them. Uh, so. I talked about this yesterday, but there were, uh, or maybe it was on Friday, but before 1054 AD, uh, what they would do is they would bring all the bishops from all the Christian churches together in an ecumenical council, and they would discuss theology, and they would agree on this is the theology that we're going to teach, and then all the bishops would go back to their geographical locations, and they would teach that theology. That was kind of the, the unity of the church. Um, and then um, if somebody didn't teach that theology, then they were, uh, you know, chastised by the church. They sometimes they were excommunicated by the church. Sometimes they were killed by the church. But up until 1054 AD, there was kind of a unified theology. And why does there need to be a unified theology? It's because uh, we as humans need to have 
unified theology I, uh, in order to be unified. And um, Christ did talk about, you know, how the church should be one. Um, and, the, you know, the, we, create, we create orders and structures, and then we expect people to follow those orders and structures. And um, you know, that's, that's kind of how the church operated until, you know, the first great schism in 1054 A.D., and the reason why I bring this all us up is because I, I miss the idea, because we all live in our own tribes, um, somehow we've lost the idea that there are other Orthodox Christian tribes out there that while they may not get the theology that we agree with 100%, someone once said, and I don't know if this is true, I don't even know how you measure something like this, but that... You know, if you if you compared all the Christian churches and looked at their theological pra- practices, um, we would agree, you know, about ninety or ninety-five percent of the time. I mean, it, it's it's probably a high degree. I mean, we probably disagree on on some things, but as far as you know, what our basis of agreement is, of course, that's Holy Scripture, and there are, and most, if not all, Christian churches have a high regard for Holy Scripture. So that's going to unify us. I mean, we're unified, not necessarily in our doctrine, but we are unified in our in our in our agreement that that Holy Scripture is the thing that unifies us. So that's just a lament that I have because uh, when I see other Christian churches, I feel like they're part of the wider church, that they're part of the four winds that get gathered together. Um, and um, it may take a while for us to figure out all of this stuff because we create rules and laws. And then when people don't follow rules and laws that we don't like, then we feel like they should follow our rules and our laws. And they probably feel like we should follow their rules and their laws. But the one only, and this is the beauty of Luther, the one thing that does bring us together and bind us together and create unity is Jesus Christ, right? That he is the, the son of God. He's the, the, the third part of the second part of the Trinity and that the Holy Scripture is the, is the words of God that we follow. And that is a great unifying thing. And so as long as we follow that, then at some level, Christ is unifying us because we are believing in Christ and we're following his words so he can unify a divided church. Let me put it that way. And for that, I'm grateful. All right. So um, we kind of got to uh, this prayer. Yesterday, we looked at the, uh, the Lord's, the, the Eucharist in the early church as being part of an agape meal. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper the very, very first time, he was with his close disciples in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed, the day before he died. And so there's this sense in the Lord's Supper, one, that there was a meal present, and number two, that it's a close association of followers of, I mean, when I say a close association, these are guys that spent three years following Jesus and learning from him and learning all of his teachings. And there was an incredible sense of closeness with these disciples. And so when Jesus brings them together in this Last Supper, it's, it's, a, it's a way to say, you all are in a very, very special group, and it's my disciples. And I want you to spread this good news throughout the world 
but I want you to keep this special night that we had together. And, and so you have a meal, which, which in the middle of that meal, then Jesus celebrates the very first Lord's Supper. And then he, then he dies and he rises again, he ascends, and the early church is trying to figure out how do we replicate this whole idea of the Lord's Supper. And um, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but I'm going to just go back and read this in chapter 10, uh, beginning of verse 1. But after you are satisfied with food, thus give thanks. We give thanks to thee, Holy, O Holy Father, for thy holy name, which thou didst make to tabernacle in our hearts. We get this sense in the Didache that, that there was more than just the Lord's Supper going on. And we, and I just want to spend a little bit of time on that because there was something in the early church that was around for a long time, but then we kind of uh, moved away from it. And what that thing was is called the love feast or the agape meal. And again, this is from a book. Uh, I have it right here. Yeah, I'll show you. This is the book. It's called Early Christian Speak, Volume 2. And what I'm going to show you is Volume volume 1. And uh, I'm going to start reading at um, about the fourth line down, the first full paragraph. And this gives a little bit of a description of what the agape meal was. And it goes like this. It is only at the end of the second century that we get a detailed description of what was done at the Christian love feast or the agape meal. It occurred in the late afternoon or early evening, the time of the principal meal of the day. Tertullian, rebutting pagan slanders, lays stress on the sober religious character of the gatherings. It's an agape because it benefits the needy. Special consideration is sown for the lowly. There's a prayer before all that takes place at the table. The eating and drinking are moderate, and after the meal, hands are washed and the lights are lit according to custom. Hymns provide the evening's entertainment. The company is dismissed with prayer. So that's how Tertullian describes the agape meal. Then Hippolytus shows it like this. Hippolytus devotes the longest space of any of our sources to the agape. But the variations in our textual authorities place much of the detail in his testimony in doubt. So Hippolytus actually uh, provides a lot of detail, but it's not like it's universal. This is how he describes it. Nevertheless, the main lines of his evidence are sure and coincide with other information. Since the bishop is expected to be present and participate whenever some member of the church wants to hold a love feast, he can fast only when the church does so. A presbyter or deacon can preside, but laymen alone are not to have a love feast. This gives a definite churchly tone to the occasion. Um, so basically, by this time of Hippolytus, which is later, remember, he's saying we're at the end of the second century. So we're at about, what would that be? Some 160 to 200, somewhere in that area is, is the end of the love feast. Now, remember, the Didache is about 80 AD. So this is about 100 years after the Didache. So this is what the love feast looked like 100 years after the Didache. And I'll keep reading. Perhaps like Ignatius, Hippolytus was concerned to preserve the unity of the community 
or his regulations may be designed to enhance the religious character of the agape and especially to provide a safeguard against the disorders which had caused so much mischief. The bishop functioned in the way the head, move this forward, the head of the household or honored guest that a Jewish religious meal did in pronouncing the blessings and distributing the bread which the meal began. The similarity of Hippolytus's regulations to the religious character of Jewish meals indicate the primitive character of much of what he says and points to the origins of these Christian practices in Judaism from which the church had sprung. The author distinguishes between the Eucharistic bread and the blessed bread. His use of the word offer throughout shows what connotation is, is to be given to this language in connection with Eucharist. To offer was to dedicate by prayer to a religious purpose. In the case of the agape meal, that purpose was the relief of the poor. Since the love feast was the fellowship meal of Christians, those who were not baptized did not recline at table with the full members of the church, nor did they eat of the bread over which the blessing was said, an expression of brotherly unity, but were given bread over which an exorcism had been pronounced in order to deliver it from the sphere of demons. Each person apparently spoke his own blessing over the cup of wine and was expected to remember the host. In his prayer, Hippolytus, like Tertullian, was concerned that the conversation and conduct not become rowdy. Okay, I'm not going to read pretty much any more of that. But to point out this, the, the agape meal in the early church, pretty much from the beginning of the church until about now, uh, it appeared that what most likely happened was that they would celebrate the Eucharist meal within the context of another larger meal, almost like Jesus did, right? Jesus celebrated the Lord's Supper. It was a little small part that he did in the middle of the Passover meal. So when they were trying to replicate Jesus, they would have a potluck. They would come together they would share food, they would have prayers, but then in the middle of that potluck, either at the beginning or in the middle or at the end, they would then set aside time to have the Eucharistic meal. And we talked yesterday about how Paul was livid that as they're having the big meal, that they weren't sharing food, they, were, you know, they weren't uh, in brotherly love. And how can you have the small meal in the context of the potluck if the potluck is creating divisions um, and all that sort of thing. And so coming out of Paul's um, chastisement or anger at, at Corinth, um, they started to modify and, and they brought the meal, the religious part, the, this Lord's Supper, uh, into the Sunday worship, the Sunday morning worship. So there was... There was this, and this took, this took a period of 200 years or maybe 100 years uh, from the time of Jesus. Well, yeah, for, until the time of Jesus, until it was kind of finalized. But in the early church, in the early church, the bottom line is, is that in the early church, this, this Eucharist was in the larger context of an agape meal where they would come together in the evening, some day of the week, they would share a meal, and in the middle of that meal, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. But by the end of the second century, and certainly, certainly by the third century, um, all of the Lord's Supper then started going into worship on Sunday morning. 
they would gather together for Sunday morning, have worship, and in the middle of worship, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. But it took a couple hundred years to get there. But I have been, I have had the Lord's Supper um, outside of necessarily a formal worship service on Sunday morning. Uh, when, when I was in high school and we would go on a youth retreat, um, we would, uh, uh, yeah, sometimes we would celebrate, yeah, we would celebrate on Sunday morning, but it was a, it was a different worship service. It was, um, it wasn't like what we do on Sunday morning. So it was, it was, uh, so it was Sunday morning, but it was the context of the worship service was more casual. It was almost like guitar worship with a couple hymns or a couple songs or reading, a small sermon, a teaching, and then the Lord's Supper. Uh, and I can remember doing that as early as in high school. And I'm old, so that was a number of years ago. Um, and that was very, very special too. I remember how, uh, I remember how special that time was, uh, being, being part of a group of small Christians gathering together for a weekend and then celebrating the end of that weekend through the Lord's Supper. And I remember just how special that was. That's a really, that, that was kind of cool. Um, and so I guess I want to say is that I wonder if there's, there is no, remember that, um, the whole point of the Reformation is that we should not burden people's consciences with things that are neither commanded nor forbidden in scripture. There is not a lot of things in scripture about how to celebrate the Eucharist meal. I mean, there's some words about what should be spoken, Paul gives uh, a lecture about how if you come together and do the Lord's Supper in the context of an agape meal, that you should be unified. But I've wondered if we've lost a little bit of that um, close, close, close fellowship. Now, if you, if you are like, oh, probably 60 or 70% of the churches in the United States that are maybe 50 people or less, you do get that incredibly close Feel. And so when you do celebrate the Lord's Supper, that, that very, very close-knit um, group of congregation, I think you do get that. What happens is as churches get larger, you know, let's say, you know, the average size of a church, I don't know what the average, the median is probably 300 people, right? That's, that's a lot larger than 30 or 50. And so you, you kind of lose that sense of, of, of unity, especially if it's happening in different worship services and all that sort of thing. And how you keep unity and closeness and yet grow the church, that is always the struggle, right? So um, maybe maybe at some point uh, it would be fun to do a meal and then in the meal, in middle of the meal do an actual Lord's Supper. I mean, I don't think that would be unbiblical and I, I, I would not be against the confessions either. I mean, it... The confessions are more about the theology behind it and, um, you know, who presides and that sort of things. But, you know, as far as actually doing it in the context of a meal is not far away from how the early church did it. And it's not forbidden by scripture. Uh, and it's, but it's not commanded by scripture either. I mean, scripture is pretty silent in the whole idea of the Lord's Supper. And I've often wondered, um, I really have wondered if we could, if we, you know, gathered together on a Sunday evening uh, and had a meal, had a potluck, did some, did a teaching, uh, had some fellowship, and in the midst of that, celebrated the Lord's Supper. I, I just think that would be really, really kind of a cool thing. 
um, probably so cool that it would grow. And then the question is, how do you how do you manage that? Because um, do you put it to another night of the week, or do you just say this is what we do? You know, you, you don't want to reject people from something like that, um, and that becomes problematic in itself. Because even here in the Didache, it says you have to have a bishop, um, which I, I guess I'm in the role of bishop here. Uh, but you could have deacons or, or elders also presiding over it. Uh, and we do have our deacons that are able to do that. So maybe maybe there is a way to do something like that. I don't know. Um, what I struggle with is that uh, this is all in the context of house churches. So um, the, the people didn't have, quote unquote, large sanctuary type buildings that could gather two, three, four, five hundred people. Uh, in the early church, it was mostly just small gatherings of, you know, maybe 30 people, maybe 40, I don't know, somewhere in, in the small number of 30 to 50, that, um, that doing something like that made perfect sense. And if it started to grow, then you just planted another house church in the neighborhood and it grew and then you planted another house church and, and you planted another house church and, the, then the, and it continued to grow and grow and grow. It was almost like small group, large small groups that just keep growing and growing and growing. Um, and, and how do you manage that? Uh, and how do you manage that growth? I mean, managing growth is always a great thing. Um, I mean, having growth is a great thing. And there's been lots of discussions over the last 50 years as the Protestant church model seems to be faltering. Like, how, how do we do this? Because it is not a hard sell. I remember... When we gathered together, when Christ Lutheran Vale first started, and we had this Sunday meal, this Sunday potluck and teaching and singing, it was really kind of fun and how enjoyable it was. That people, you know, they, we even had some people in the community that showed up just because it was such a cool thing. Um, and then when we started worshiping on Sunday morning, some of those people, I think they must have had other churches that they went to uh, because they, they didn't, um, they, they stopped showing up and they didn't show up on Sunday morning. Um, and then, of course, a lot of the people that we had on that evening stuff, they were already attending other churches. So once we started worship on Sunday morning, that whole thing went away. But it is a pretty powerful way to grow. The, nobody ever, ever says no to a meal. Like you can always invite somebody to a meal. Hey, we're having a meal on Sunday night. Uh, we're going to have chicken, fried chicken, potluck. Why, why don't you join me for a meal? Okay, that sounds great. Um, that's not a hard sell at all. And maybe that's why the, the early church was just so fantastically um, successful in growing the church. Because when then, you know, Paul went into a, into a community, uh, you know, we think that he pulled together a building committee and built a building and all that. No, he just gathered one or two people, invited them over for a meal, and then said, hey, invite your friends next week. We're going to talk about something interesting. And they invited their friends. And, and I mean, they basically was, it was all small house churches. And, uh, and create a great fellowship and community. Um, maybe, maybe that model, maybe there's some place for that model. I'm not exactly sure where, but you know, that, that, probably is, that probably is part of the model when the church is no longer the dominant force in a community. Um, maybe it's maybe house churches or something to reconsider. I don't know. Uh, and then of course, you know, uh, figuring that out whole thing is a huge challenge too. All right. So I think we're, uh, let me, I do, I want to finish chapter 10. Do I want to finish chapter 10? Let me look. Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and finish this. Um, this is, uh, 
This is chapter 10, right after where it's highlighted in, in 5. Uh, let's start in verse 6. Let grace come and let this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If any man be holy, let him come. If any man be not, let him repent. Maranatha, amen. But suffer the prophets to hold Eucharist as they will. And so um, the, you also get a sense. The Maranatha is the cry of the early church for God to come. Remember, when um, Jesus left, he says, I'm returning again. And I'll return again in glory. And things will be great when I return again. And there was very much an indication in all of the writings from the early church that they expected that to happen like, you know, five, ten years. You know, I don't know. When the, when Jesus said, I'm returning, you know, he ascended into heaven and said, I'm coming back. And why, do you, why are you upset? The same way he left, he will come back. Um, they probably thought, okay, you know, he's preparing a... You know, he built the world, world in six days. How long does it take to build, you know, our eternal home? Um, you know, maybe maybe three hours or six days or something like that or, or two weeks. And so they felt like he was coming back, you know, almost immediately. And that was the cry of the early church is, Lord, come. Now, I can tell you that um, people have made this cry their whole entire life. Lord, come. Why? Because we want to be with him forever. Uh, we want to rightfully claim our home, our room in the mansion that he's building for us. And that we know that that's going to be better than anything on this earth. But for whatever reason, Christ still leaves us remaining on this earth to do his work. And we are in the kingdom. I mean, our place is secure. The hotel reservate, you know, we'll keep the light on for you, Motel 6, right? Um, we know that the reservation has been made. Uh, we know that we're going to pull into the parking lot at the end of a long day and we're going to have our room with Jesus forever, but we're still on the road. We're still kind of getting there. And sometimes that's drudgery. And sometimes we have pandemics and sometimes we have elections and sometimes we have all sorts of things in this world that cause us grief. But Jesus is with us in the grief. And when you are a member of the kingdom, the grief while it, is, while it is, exists, it is overshadowed by an incredible love of a Savior who loves us. And that's what we cling to. So um, that, that's, uh, that was the prayer of the early church, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. It's a, I think it's a, uh, yeah, I, I can't remember, Aramaic, I think, of a word that means come Lord Jesus. And that was the cry of the early church. So maybe that's our cry as we close in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for the blessings of this day, and um, thank you for this time to gather together around you and your words. Uh, and Lord, we do pray, Maranatha, in the midst of all the trial and the temptation uh, of this world, we know that you love us and that you've prepared a home for us and that you're coming back to get us. And for that, we give you thanks and praise. Uh, in your name we pray. Amen.